Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists discuss their most recent work. Today, I had so much fun chatting with Abigail Marsh, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University. Her work has focused on phenomena as diverse as empathy, altruism, aggression, and psychopathy. In 2017, Abby published her book, The Fear Factor, describing her fascinating research with extreme altruists on the one hand and individuals with psychopathy on the other. She is the former president of the Social and Effective Neuroscience Society. In this episode, Abby challenges the common assumption that individualism means selfishness. Instead, she has found that individualism predicts more kindness, just like being healthy and wealthy predicts being kinder to others. We discuss if our understanding of individualism is wrong, if kindness might look different in individualistic versus collectivistic cultures, and if people are too cynical these days. Without further ado, here's our conversation. I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Abigail Marsh for the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. So you sent me this really interesting paper um, with a lot of very counterintuitive findings almost about how uh, helping behavior differs across countries and is predicted by things that we would not you know, expect to predict helping behavior. Uh, just in broad strokes, what is this finding, um, the key finding of your paper and what were you measuring? Yeah, absolutely. So we were measuring variation across nations in seven different kinds of altruistic behavior. Uh, three self-reported altruistic behaviors that are um, collected by the Gallup polling organization, everyday helping of a stranger. That's an open question, but it's usually things like giving directions or helping somebody who's lost, um, uh, volunteering for some sort of organization or donating money to charity. And then also some behaviors that were more objectively measured, uh, including um, living uh, kidney donations, blood donations, and being on the bone marrow registry for that uh, country. And then finally, the humane treatment of non-human animals, which is there's an organization that gives countries sort of a score of how well they treat non-human animals across all sorts of different domains. So seven like quite divergent different kinds of altruism um, that uh, we found is one of our one uh, one of our primary findings for the paper was that there's a lot of convergence among these different kinds of altruism, which are measured in very different ways and by different organizations across nations. Enough that we um, uh, were able to combine them to create a sort of a single coherent measure of altruistic behavior across countries. Uh, and I think all by itself, I think that's a really interesting finding that you see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm that countries where people tend to treat non-human animals more humanely also have more people on their bone marrow registries. And also people are more likely to help a stranger on the street who's lost. <laughs> uh, so that suggests all by itself that there must be some broader cultural variables that are uh, underlying this broader helping other people construct. And I should mention that all of these behaviors, um, they don't all completely measure helping strangers, but they're certainly um, bias towards behaviors that are for the benefit of people you don't know that well. 
So I always emphasize that there are lots of ways that people can be altruistic and compassionate towards people who are close to them. We just don't have great measurements of those behaviors. Um, uh, okay. And so then the next thing, once we found that these behaviors tend to rise and fall in tandem across nations, which leads to the likely hypothesis that there are cultural variables, um, was that we found a very strong correspondence between these variables and measures of subjective well-being. Um, in particular, people's self-reports of thriving. Um, so it's not so much your daily emotions, you know, are you feeling happy or are you feeling sad on the day the pollsters call, but do you, you know, how do you feel about your life overall? Are you satisfied with your life? Do you have the things you need? Are your relationships good? And even after you control for all of these measures of objective well-being across nations like wealth, you know, GDP, um, longevity, which is a pretty good measure of health, education, um, so what percent of the population can read, you know, all of the, and, you know, these things also, by the way, correspond very closely with subjective well-being. So, but even after you control for all of these variables related to wealth and health and education, you still find this really strong relationship between well-being, subjective well-being, and altruism, which I think makes sense. I think most people don't find it surprising that when people are flourishing, uh, they are more likely to have both the psychological and material resources to help mm -hmm. other people. That sort of makes sense. Um, another finding that I think people do find more counterintuitive is that if you look at cultural variables, um, variables like individualism, collectivism, which we know vary quite a bit across cultures, uh, the cultural variable that also corresponds very closely with both subjective well-being and altruism um, is individualism and positively. So the, the countries where people are more individualist, we see higher levels of well-being, which is something we knew actually um, at Diener had found this, that, uh, that individualism is one of the best predictors of well-being at a national level. Um, but uh, we found that individualism also predicts altruism, which is, you know, mm. I, I, I got a lot of emails um, after <laughs> this paper was published and after I wrote a piece about it um, uh, that confirmed that many people, you know, were, are surprised by this finding and, and that to some extent also just don't like the finding um, or, you know, it doesn't comport with their own sort of perceptions of the world, um, which is, I think is interesting. Um, and I'll add as a side note, I should mention that, of course, I did not run this paper by myself. The lead author on this paper was my PhD student, Sean Rhodes, um, and our co-authors were Devin Gunter, who's an undergrad at Harvard, and my colleague at Georgetown, Rebecca Ryan. I think it's somewhat intuitive, but it's also, as you said, somewhat counterintuitive, right? And so the most individualistic country in the world is arguably the United States, and you don't even have to be outside of the United States to encounter the stereotype that Americans are selfish. Right. And there's nothing you can do about it. Even within America, you know, oftentimes people, especially of the other political party, are seen as very selfish and everyone's just out for themselves. People don't trust each other. Mm -hmm. And then you have these wonderful optimistic findings that are like, well, at least in certain kinds of altruistic behavior, we find that, you know, the more individualistic you are, whatever the causal direction is, the more you seem to help people. So this is a wonderful counterintuitive narrative that seems to have a lot of uh, power and maybe not to be too grandiose, but, you know, providing us a more optimistic picture about one another, which seems like we really need. Absolutely, right? Because one of the things we do know is that individualistic values are on the rise around the world. 
individualism tends to follow from increases in uh, prosperity and wealth. Uh, as actually a former um, undergrad of mine at Georgetown, he worked in not my lab, but he was in some of my classes. Uh, his name is Hansky Santos, um, and Igor Grossman found that individualism is rising all over the world. Um, and so it would be quite terrifying if that meant that people were inevitably going to become more and more selfish as time went on. But I think the conflation of individualism with selfishness is unfortunate and it's just, it's not true. I think it comes partly just from the semantics of it. You know, the word individualism seems to connote a focus on the individual self. That's not actually what it means exactly. Um, it's a focus on individuals as individuals rather than as representatives of groups. And that's not just yourself, but that's other people as well. Um, and I also think that there is a, I think Ayn Rand somehow along the way got the, you know, cornered the market on what individualism mm -hmm. is. And, you know, mm -hmm. why do we believe her? She's, you know, <laughs> she's kind of a crank who, uh, <laughs> who, who, who wrote some books that people have found compelling, but you know, who's to say she's right on what individualism is. Um, and so, uh, it does not seem to be the case that, that people who are, um, focused on the individual as the sort of unit of society are more selfish in terms of the way that they prioritize themselves over other individuals. Those two, that's, there's no logical relationship between those two things. And in fact, as we found, um, the societies in which people have more individualist values, there's no evidence that they're more selfish. Now, here's the other, you know, whether you want to go into this whole sort of political theory, uh, question. I don't, you know, you feel free to cut this part out, but you know, there's this other, you know, philosophy of libertarianism that is very prominent in the U S in particular, you know, parts of the mountain West and, and um, more sort of rural areas that is a little bit more about sort of this leave me alone philosophy. <laughs> um, and it, it, libertarianism is not the same thing as individualism, but there is some overlap. And so I would say that to the extent that libertarianism um, has a healthy streak of you can't tell me what to do and I don't want to pay taxes. Um, you know, it, it's easier to argue that those things are, you could argue selfish. Um, although then there's this other interesting question of whether it's, um, it's the same thing to not, you know, want the government to redistribute wealth versus maybe you want to redistribute your wealth your own way and mm -hmm. you, you just don't want the government to do it for you. But, you know, I, I, that's for the political scientists to worry about. That's not my concern as much. Um, so anyway, but I, I, I do want to make the um, distinction between libertarianism and individualism, which it's not like they're uncorrelated, but they're also very much not the same thing. Um, when I think about individualism, the, the way I try to explain it is um, you can do it in terms of sort of popular movies, for example. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Big Sick uh, with Kumail Nanjiani. Um, it was like an Amazon movie a couple of years ago. I love the movie. I, I think it's a great movie, just mm -hmm. period. But it is a great movie from a cultural perspective in particular because the star and writer of the movie who plays himself is a man named Kamil Najani who was born in Pakistan and then moved to the United States with his family when he was young. And Pakistan is one of the most collectivist countries in the world. And of course, the United States is the most individualist. And much of the movie really hinges upon that conflict that he has with his family because he grew up in large part in the United States. And he, um, as an adult, he wants to to 
to follow his own dreams. He wants to do the things that make him happy rather than suppressing his goals and his desires and his sort of purpose in life to satisfy his community, his family, his religious group. And so his parents want him to maintain his uh, Muslim religious beliefs, marry a, a woman who's Pakistani, and become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer at the very least. Um, and he doesn't want to do any of those things. He wants to marry a, a, a white American woman that he met. Um, he wants to, you know, he does not believe in uh, Islamic faith and he wants to be a comedian. Uh, those are the things that would make him happy. He's an individualist, right? He wants, you know, and and his family does not want him to do those things. And, you know, that's the real sort of individualist collectivist difference. Uh, you can also think of it in terms of, um, you know, the greeting cards and things that you see in, in university bookstores. I took a picture of a rack at the Georgetown bookstore because I loved it so much. It's just liquid mm. individualism. <laughs> you know, it's it's the greeting cards we see all the time and we don't think anything of, but they're very individualist if you think about it. They're things like go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Do more of that which makes you happy. Live the life you want to live, right? What is that? It's just telling you, be an individualist. Do the things that make you happy. And so it is, is it a surprise that in countries where those are the sorts of values that are prized, people report higher levels of well-being because they're more likely to be doing the things that they personally find meaningful and valuable rather than overriding their own, per, you know, the things that make them unique individuals uh, because they don't want to disrupt the group. Um, yeah. And I love it because I was talking to Thomas Talhelm the other day and he was talking about how our understanding of collectivism is somewhat misguided because we think yes. it's this, you know, utopian socialism where everyone's holding yeah. hands in the streets and singing Kumbaya. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not the case. And now you're making the case that individualism is not about being selfish and just doing whatever you want, right? It's also more right. complicated. And the power of yeah. this narrative, this is your work and other people's right. work in the field is, you know, if you want to be happy, it is in your interest, not to be too cynical here, to help others, right? Because yes. we are happy when we help others. And then it seems like uh, this happiness in turn makes us more likely to help others. So there seems to be this, and you speculate about this in your paper, there seems to be this positive upward spiral. And then maybe yes. vice versa, I would assume there might be a negative, like, like a downward spiral, where if you help others less, then you're less happy. And then maybe you're even less likely to help others. I don't know, this is speculative. Yeah. Oh, these are such good points you're making. Um, I like the fact, and I meant to flag it earlier. I like the fact that you, you know, make the point that we can't make strong statements about causality uh, based on this current paper. Although there are other papers out there that that can say a lot more about causality. And my guess is that there's a lot of arrows going multiple directions. <laughs> As you say, it's probably sort of a self-reinforcing spiral where um, helping other people does make us happy. We know that that's true. Um, and, and what's so interesting is that, that when you, when your well-being is higher, you seem to be more likely to want to help people. There is some mm. laboratory, more experimental evidence on that too, which suggests it is a self-reinforcing spiral. And what I like about these findings is that, um, again, what we think individualist cultural values do is sort of free people up to pursue the things they find personally meaningful. Um, mm. and isn't it neat that, that what people do in cultures where that is true is help people, which I think is very consistent with the idea that helping other people is a fundamental value. People do find it personally meaningful. It is something everybody would want to do um, if they, you know, were at liberty to, if they were, um, you know, in the position to do so. 
I certainly believe that about most people. I, I'm a eternal optimist about human nature and I, and not, I wouldn't call myself naive about human nature because I also study people who are psychopathic. I know that there are people out there who are genuinely selfish mm-hmm. and I should also emphasize you can get selfish people in any culture. I mean, and believe me, there are selfish people in every culture. So it's not like selfishness doesn't exist. Of course it does. Um, it's way overrepresented in media. So if you're, if your views on human nature come from your social media feed and national news, of course you're going to come up away with the conclusion that people are horrible and selfish because that's what the media shows you is the worst people right but if you just interact with real people day to day mm-hmm. you know the actual people that you know or don't know frankly interacting with strangers is great i love i love meeting strangers um uh you can't help but come away with the impression that you know people are genuinely really pretty nice it's amazing how nice people are in day to day life um uh, even though there are those truly selfish people out there that we do need to watch out for. Um, and isn't it great that, that it seems to be the case that the, the, the more sort of psychological freedom people have to pursue their interests, the, the more likely they are to want to help other people. I think that's pretty awesome. So if we're uh, more healthy and wealthy and happy, then it frees us to do what we want to do. But do we know what yeah, we, we have enough resources? I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, a reasonable question is, well, you know, if you don't have any money, of course, you can't donate any to charity. And I say that's totally true. Now, uh, you know, somebody like the mid range of the of the um, income or wealth spectrum in the United States probably has something to give to charity. And in fact, you know, a lot of Americans in every decile of the wealth um and this is true for people in all countries. I mean, I'm just talking about Americans because I know those data best. But um you know, people in all in every decile, you know, there are people who do give some to charity, but you do see that the amount goes up in general, not perfectly linearly, um, as your wealth um, increases, which makes sense, right? You do have more resources. And I think that's true for lots of things. If you're healthier, you're more likely to be able to donate a kidney. That's that's true too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so material resources do matter when it comes to altruism. But what's neat is that even again, controlling for all of that, um, you know, well being, I think of as a psychological resource. That um, that does give you the I don't want to call it a luxury, but certainly gives you the opportunity to to look outward and and think about who else around you is in even more need than you. I still wonder to what extent we might be underestimating the uh, happiness we would get from helping people. Right? There's all this research on uh, people taking the train, and like, I don't want to talk to strangers. That would be awkward. That would be horrible. I want to be on my own, you know, listening to an audiobook, maybe listening to this podcast. Uh, I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to talk to strangers. But every time they do, almost every time, you know, it turns out it's much more positive than they anticipated, and they thrive much more when they interact with strangers. And there's lots of studies like this, right? And we have this narrative where if you ask people, if you had a billion dollars tomorrow, what would you do? Very few people are like, I'll donate, right? It's like, I would get a car and a, you know like a, like a house with 26 bedrooms because that's what i really need and that's what's going to make me happy and it's not and so we seem to have some level of insight into this but maybe we're underestimating the power of, of social connection i definitely think that's true and i have really enjoyed all this recent research that's being published on interactions with strangers and how much people enjoy it more than they think they will but even though they enjoy it they're still not more likely to do it <laughs> the next time and they don't seem to get any better predicting that they'll like it. I think mm-hmm. I, I find that line of research really interesting. Um, and I, I do tend to agree with it myself because, um, you know, I, I was trained as a social psychologist. Um, I do, my PhD is actually in social psychology and, um, what we didn't do, you know, just, I think just be 
because of the nature of a lot of social psychology research is a lot of interviews. I didn't start doing interviews with people until I um, switched to doing more clinically oriented work <laughs> at the National Institute of Health. Um, and uh, a lot of my research on altruism is sort of clinically um, designed in the sense that I take these unusual populations of people who are unusually altruistic in their day-to-day life. And I try to understand what makes them tick and then use that to understand altruism, which is a different approach than is standard in social psychology, which is you try to create these behaviors in the lab using um, manipulations of a, of mm-hmm. a social situation. Uh, in any case, once I started this more clinically oriented line of research, I started doing a lot more interviews, uh, you know, long interviews, really getting to know people. And um, I, I just feel like it's been an incredible, um, I don't know, blessing. Uh, and, uh, and enjoy to, to get to meet so many strangers who participate in my research and get to talk to them about their experiences and learn a little more about them, you know, with the, the mind and the person behind the MRI data and the survey mm-hmm. data. Um, and I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy it. It's my favorite days that I get to talk to all these strangers um, who, who come through the lab and, and give us the, the generosity of their time. And P.S., I've come to believe that participating in research is absolutely a form of altruism. It is amazing how much more altruistic than the average person, the average research participant is. And the more altruistic the population you're working with, the more likely they are to be willing to participate in the research you're conducting. So I think this is something social psychologists should keep in mind is that we are sampling a highly altruistic subset of the population and most of the research that we do. Um, but yeah, why, you know, why it is that we don't seem to anticipate that talking to strangers and helping strangers will um, be a source of, of positive affect and well-being? I, I don't, I, I don't have a great sense of why that is. Um, I don't even know if I have a good guess. Although it does seem to be the case that people who are unusually altruistic, um, one of the things that I tend to notice about their histories is that they started out being altruistic in small ways. And then, and then, you know, went from donating blood to bone marrow to a kidney, which mm. suggests a sort of a learning process. Oh, you know, help doing mm. this was great. And I, and, and whether consciously or not was rewarding and fulfilling. And I'm really glad I did it. Uh, and so then when the opportunity to donate something even more resource intensive pops up, well, that seems like a great bet too. Yeah, this is a good point maybe to mention to our listeners that you have also written a book called The Fear Factor, which I recently had a chance to read. And I, I really enjoyed the part where you described the participants that you're working with, right? Where on the one hand, you have people who are so altruistic and anonymously donating a kidney to a stranger, offering you to pay to participate in your research and fly half across the country. And on the other hand, you have people with more psychopathic traits um, who were, what was it, at one point peeing on your lab equipment and just doing all things of all kinds of horrible things that are really not. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, well, I should, in her, in that subject defense, I should say she was peeing. The only reason there was pee anywhere was because we had to give them pregnancy tests before the scans. Mm. And I think she was a little careless in whether she hit the cup or not. And anyways, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, when it's amazing how um, working with adolescents and brain scans and things gets you in contact with more body fluids than you might think um, over time, <laughs> um, you know, between the earplugs we put in and the, and the pregnancy tests. It was, it was, and we, we collected saliva from them at various points. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, that was a, that was a unexpected part of the, of the process. Um, but I should say it really is amazing how these highly altruistic populations uh, are um, just exemplary research participants, you know, 
quickly respond to emails, show up early for everything. Sometimes, you know, offer to do like an enormous amount of work, even if they don't, even before they realize they'll get compensated for it or, you know, offer to pay for their own plane tickets. It's really just uh, been, it's been fantastic. And I will say it helped inform the research I did looking at differences across nations, which is, of course, you know, very, you're very separate from your data at that point. I didn't ever meet any of these research <laughs> participants who knows who they are. It's, you know, thousands and thousands of people around the world. But having worked with people personally who have donated kidneys or donated marrow and gotten to know them, uh, I, it really did help me put the findings in context. Um, because, for example, one of the things that crops up a lot when we're interviewing um, altruists versus controls is when we ask um, controls why they maybe wouldn't donate a kidney to a stranger. Um, one of the things that is most likely to come up is that, you know, something about how this person maybe wouldn't deserve it. You know, this, mm. this would be a person in that bad group of people, you know, maybe a substance mm. user, maybe somebody in the opposing political party, you know, maybe somebody who's like a criminal, um, kind of a groups based way of thinking about people. Whereas altruistic kidney donors, um, are more likely to say things along the lines of, you know, when you ask them, you know, did anybody try to convince you not to donate? Did, you know, did, did anybody try to say you shouldn't? Um, their responses are along the lines of, well, every person deserves the chance to live. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't believe there's any person who, like me, you know, isn't a human being who deserves to live mm -hmm. rather than die. Uh, and I, I get the sense that they think of individuals as, you know, each having human worth and, you know, and deserving some basic well-being. Uh, and I, I think that that is a very individualist mindset. Um, and so that the experience working in person with some of these populations, mm -hmm. I think, helped me think about the data that we collected. And it's not naivety on their part, right? It's so much more complicated. One of the most exciting things I've come across in my own research is that, um, you know, when you talk to people who are very cynical, they oftentimes say that they understand reality for what it is. Everyone else is wearing rose-colored glasses, right? But then it turns out, if you look at the research, um, there's what is called the triangle hypothesis, where people who are very selfish tend to think everyone's kind of selfish. Mm -hmm. But people who are more altruistic, they have a more balanced view of people, right? They're mm -hmm. also less confident. They're like, yeah, some people are good, some people are bad. But there's very rarely this... Um, you know, this, this straw man that cynical people make where everyone, the only alternative to cynicism is being completely naive and optimistic. Now, you can be too naive and can be taken advantage of. But I wonder if you, you've studied some of these most <laughs> altruistic individuals who have this more, you know, optimistic view of human nature. I assume even these people have some nuance where they're like, yeah, maybe I should be careful and not be taken advantage of and they're not entirely naive. Or do you think mm -hmm. they really might want to be a little bit more cynical in situations? You know, I don't have any good sort of data on whether they're more likely to be taken advantage of. Um, you know, what's interesting is that you could think of um, people who are more narcissistic or more psychopathic as people who are willing to exploit others to benefit themselves. And as people who are the most altruistic as being sort of willing to be voluntarily like exploited by other people. Um, even if it comes at a cost to themselves, if it will help the other person. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't actually think of donating kidney or donating blood as being exploited by somebody else at all. I just, you know, it's just the relative balance in, in the benefits um, to the two parties. Um, I don't know. I mean, I certainly have 
come across stories on the individual level of some of the altruists I've worked with having actually been exploited by people who were, you know, con artists or thieves or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not data. And, you know, who knows how that um, compares to the average person. We do have a little data on perceptions of sort of pure good and pure evil, and altruists are less likely to believe that people can be truly evil mm-hmm. and somewhat more likely to believe that people can be truly good. Um, than the average person, although the differences aren't huge. Um, but that makes sense, right? You, you, you must, if you're willing to give, for example, a kidney to a person out there who you've never met and may never meet, mm-hmm. you have to believe that, that 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 person has enough common core goodness to be worth mm-hmm. giving up your own kidney for. There, you know, there has to be a high enough likelihood of that person being a um, a worthwhile person. Um. But uh, in addition to that, there's this interesting relationship you find pretty consistently between altruism and humility, um, that people who are altruistic are higher in the honesty-humility trait that's mm. indexed by the hexaco scale. And in fact, I completely switched to using the hexaco, by the way. I don't use big five scales anymore. Oh, and I know this is a... This is an issue, I know, in personality research. You know, whether the big five scales capture personality, you get the same stuff from the big five that you get from the hexaco. But to me, if um, no none of the big five scales, any individual scale can can actually distinguish between somebody who gives a kidney to a stranger and an average person. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> to me, that's not that satisfying. Um, whereas the hexaco scales can consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the honesty humility scale is the scale that distinguishes between altruistic kidney donors and other altruists and controls. Um, and uh, and so I think it may also be the case that people who are altruistic are just more humble in general. They're, mu- they're less likely to believe that they have some unique lock on the truth, that they understand things better mm-hmm. than other people. They, they, re- they have a, a humility about everything. So it makes sense that they also would have a greater sense of humility about, you know, what people are like, you know, I don't know any better than you. Um, and I, you know, there's a, it's important to think about, you know, what humility is, isn't, you know, humility isn't false modesty. Humility isn't self-deprecation, uh, low self-esteem. It's just mm-hmm. having a, you know, an accurate view of oneself and also not viewing oneself as any more important than anybody else or of having any more intrinsic value than anybody else, which I think is essential to altruism, right? It makes perfect sense that if you're giving your kidney away to a stranger, you have to believe that that person's intrinsic value is not that different from yours, right? Otherwise it wouldn't make, Mm -hmm. if you're the most important person, it definitely does not make sense to give pieces of yourself away to less important people. Um, And so I think humility is a big part of understanding altruism. Now, you have measured altruism in your paper uh, in seven different forms, and you have said yourself, and I have also noticed this as I was reading the paper, even though it's a lot of different forms of altruism, they tilt towards, you know, helping strangers, which is maybe the most extreme and hardest to explain uh, form of altruism from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Selfish gene, it was selfish, and, you know, at some point people came around and were like, yeah, okay, you know, we help family at least, we have kin altruism, right, because that makes sense, and that you can extend it and talk about reputation and reciprocity uh, mechanisms but it seems like maybe for this very you know stranger the, the helping of strangers yes maybe this kind of altruism increases as we're like happier and healthier and wealthier mm-hmm. um but what about these other kinds of you know more kin altruism helping out your brother your sister your father um at home and you know when these these close-knit communities what would you expect about how this changes as uh countries become more individualistic mm. 
Yeah, that's great. There's a lot of embedded questions in there. Um, so a couple things. I mean, first of all, it's very clear that the average person is much more likely to help a close relative. And even though you're not genetic kin with your, for example, a spouse, people treat spouses as though they were genetic kin um, when it comes to altruism. And then, you know, less close relatives, friends, and then strangers. So we know that that's true. I mean, there's no doubt about it, that people do help people who are closer to them. Uh, and that, you know, it's an interesting thing, whether that's a good, I mean, it, people vary a lot as to whether they, they believe that that's just inherently right and good and the way things should be, or whether that's an unacceptable form of bias. <laughs> we think in social psychology of bias is a bad thing that we should try to get rid yes. of, but somehow altruistic bias uh, escapes that um, that general lens, at least for, for some people, right? The effective altruists, um, you know, some of the extreme effective altruists would argue that you actually shouldn't value those people who are mm -hmm. closest to others more than mm -hmm. any other random stranger in the world. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting philosophical question. Um, so the, I will say that I'm not a cultural psychologist by training. I do have a close collaborator at um, Georgetown, uh, Yulia Chinsova-Dutton, who actually got her degree from Stanford um, in psychology. So uh, she is my font of knowledge when it comes to um, understanding cultural differences in topics that I'm not as that I don't research myself. Um, and the data on helping uh, and certainly relationships with close kin and family across countries, and I will emphasize again, this is not my particular area of research, but I know a little bit about it. It's, a, it's interesting. It's not as cut and dry as you might think. Um, and this comes back to the question you asked earlier about, you know, this sort of false sense of collectivism as a panacea. And I will I'll, again emphasize individualism is also not a panacea. It's not like there's a you know, mm -hmm. sort of superior way to be. It's just there's different strengths um, that come with different sets of values and frameworks. Um, but I do think you often, I think, hear a narrative about collectivism about as caring about other people, which is not what it's about. It's about caring about your people mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and making strong distinctions between one's own collective and people who are not in one's own collective. And what's interesting, one difference between individualist and collectivist cultures is that you see in more individualist societies, uh, strangers, unaffiliated strangers, you don't know anything about them, are more likely to be treated like an in-group member, whereas in more collectivist societies, unaffiliated strangers are more likely to be treated like an out-group member, um, which also has something to do with a variable called relational mobility, which is the degree to which people can change their social relationships uh, across the course of time. Uh, and in general, in more collective societies, relationships are not as mobile. So the relationships you have now are the relationships you'll have 10 years from now. So there's not as much of an interest in making friends with new strangers. You know, they're likely to stay strangers. Uh, whereas in, in more individualist societies, again, generalizing, um, strangers are more likely to be thought of as a potential friend, a potential new contact. Um, so, but coming back to your question about relationships between close others, you know, I know a little bit of data about this um, and I know that interestingly, and this was a big surprise to me, but again, this is something I've learned from my cultural psychology friends that there's some evidence that closer relationships are actually um, some things about closer relationships are actually better in more individualist cultures. Uh, you tend to see, for example, in marriages or other close relationships, a lot more emotional expressivity, a lot more disclosure, mm -hmm. um, and a lot more relationship maintenance behaviors, because again, if this is a relationship that could end, right, this person could choose to ditch you. 
Mm. Uh, and, you know, one, like one marker that's often used of individualist values in a society is divorce, for example, right? Mm. I'm not, I'm not stuck in this marriage. I don't like this marriage anymore. I can leave. Mm-hmm. That's a, mm-hmm. you know, individualist. Mm-hmm. In theory, that's a more individualist value. Um, uh, and so, of course, you know, you would do more relationship maintenance behaviors when you, um, uh, if you believe that your relationship might end. Uh, I do think one of the more interesting questions at this current moment in time is how this uh, affects your sense of yourself within the social world. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the data on loneliness and social connectedness, which we see as these you know, massive epidemic problems across much of the world. Um, and that I think is a really interesting question that deserves more looking into, which is whether um, in more individualist societies where you're, you know, part of a much sort of looser set of social networks that are more um, diverse, probably in some ways, and more mobile um, and more sort of choice-based, does that promote a sense of social connectedness or not? And I, I don't know because you know the, the U.S. is is it's also important to remember U.S. is is one individualist culture, but if you're looking at problems that are unique to the U.S., individualism isn't going to get you there because there's lots of other individualist cultures. You know, you have to think of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Netherlands, Germany um, are also all highly individualist cultures. And so, you know, you can have a social democracy in an individualist culture. You can have national health care in an individualist culture, right? These, these are not antithetical. But um but it'd be interesting to look to see whether there is some relationship between individualist values and loneliness and, and, and feeling disconnected from the social world. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a really important question because uh, things are things are not good on that front in the U.S. or a number of other countries right now. And it's, it's a huge problem. Fixing. Yeah, it seems like just with any social groups that we people form, uh, there's immediately a lot of judgment for people who are different, for the old group, right? And you can see this along individualism versus collectivism lines. Uh, one often recited example is when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And, you know, many people who were more individualistic were, just leave your city and go somewhere else and, you know, no yeah. problems. And then other people were like, this is my home. You don't just leave your home. You don't just leave your community behind yeah. um, and just become the selfish individual who's just going somewhere. And there's a lot of judgment on like both sides, which in this case you can, you can see and people are just stuck. Yeah. a little bit in their perspective and it's hard to just understand a different whole mode of yeah. being and I really see this paper as contributing to the nuance and uh, it's not like one is better than the other it's, it's really so much more complicated yeah and I think it's interesting to think about that you know because you bring up the selfish individual thing if you think about you know let's say there's a disagreement somebody's house gets wiped away in a flood their family wants them to stay they want to go seek out a new life elsewhere my guess is that each of those parties would think the other one was being selfish Mm-hmm. I think selfishness is often a trait we, ass- I mean, some people actually are selfish. And so I'm going to say that right now. There are plenty of people who are actually selfish and don't like helping other people, don't value other people's welfare. But in addition, I do think there's a tendency to view other people as selfish who don't do what we want them to do. <laughs> if my if my welfare and your welfare are pitted against each other and, you know, you're the parent, for example, who wants your child to, you know, do the thing that you want them to do. And they don't want to do it. It's easy to say, well, they're being selfish, but they could also say, well, you know, I, I can see this opportunity for me that would help make me happy and fulfill me. And you don't want me to do it because of your needs. Maybe you're being selfish. And, you know, I think it's I think it's important to remember that there's almost always two sides to whenever there's an interpersonal disagreement, there's two perspectives. Um, not that they're always equally valid. 
Um, but it's important to think about what these two perspectives are um, and to remember that it's easy to think of people who don't do the things that we want them to do as selfish. Whereas from their perspective, um, and I do think that this is true, and maybe this is me being optimistic, but I do think most people are doing what they think is reasonable from their own perspective, given the information they have, given the world as they see it, um, given the experiences that they've had in the past, most people's decisions seem to them like the right and reasonable thing to do. And if you disagree with their decisions, maybe there's more that you need to know about the context in which they're making those choices. I, this comes up a lot, actually, in talking with altruistic controls, because I find egocentric bias really crops up here. Whereas mm. people who don't give kidneys to strangers, which is objectively more normative, you know, naturally view the choice to give a kidney to a stranger as the thing in need of explaining. Mm. That, that's strange, right? That's a strange thing to do. Mm. That needs to be explained. But it's so important to remember mm. that, that the people who donate kidneys to strangers, they think not giving a kidney is the thing that needs to be explained. From their perspective, given their sort of frame of reference, giving a kidney to somebody who's going to die without it seems like the obvious thing to do, right? They don't think it's weird. They, they kind of understand that, uh, that it's not normative in the sense that it's not common and that other people find it surprising, but they don't find there's anything that needs explaining about it, right? And so it's just so important to remember how different people's frames of reference can be. Yeah, and we're running up against time and I want to give you an opportunity to, to add something, but I also want to highlight just how much I agree with this. And anyone who's ever met me will, will confirm this very quickly. I've been preaching about this <laughs> for a long time. And maybe this is the answer to uh, what we were discussing earlier, where we're like, well, if we help each other so much and we're so much nicer, then it seems that, you know, why are we so cynical? And, you know, maybe it's because we don't see where other people are coming from. You know, there are truly selfish individuals, but oftentimes, especially in a country like in America, where you have so many camps, not just political camps, but just so many camps in general, you know, other people's behavior just seems selfish by your own moral standards. You're so bad at just really overcoming our naive realism, as our late mm -hmm. colleague uh, Lee Ross would have put it, right? Mm -hmm. of, of our, you know, complete mm -hmm. conviction that we get it right and we see reality for what it is. And if other people are doing things differently, they must be wrong or even actually evil in the moral domain. <laughs> and we just don't see where they're coming yeah. from. Um, so, so I agree with that. And yeah, again, we're running up against time. So if there's anything you want to add? No, I I'm, I'm so glad that this is a, a topic that interests you because I do think it's just so important for us to understand. Um, although I will say that people's behavior does not suggest that they're cynical. You know, and, and I think there's a real difference between the concrete, specific, and the abstract way that people think about others. And I don't know if you've ever seen the data where if you ask people what they think about Congress, their opinions are very low and have been for a decade. People don't like Congress. But if you ask them how they feel about their own congressperson, they really like them, right? They're like, oh, my congressperson's great. That, that abstraction of Congress people out there, you know, they're, they're no good. I like my congressperson, right? And so... I tend to think that we're often that way in relationships in general. You know, any individual person that we come across, I think it's pretty easy to see their humanity if they're a real person to us. I mean, I was just traveling through the West this summer, Montana, Wyoming, you know, real, you know, very libertarian parts of the country, you know, not a lot of people, a lot more antelopes than people, at least once upon a time. Um, and that people aren't cynical when you meet them one-on-one. -on -one. You know, there was no Subway sandwich store I stopped in, you know, no ranch hand I talked to who wasn't just incredibly nice and, and, and helpful and interested in me. And just, it was just one delightful interaction after another. I can't remember one interaction I had that was, it was anything less than delightful. 
Um, and you know, it's not like, again, have I had, you know, you've read my book, like I've been, I've had my nose broken by a stranger, punched me in the face. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not like I don't understand that people don't do bad things to people. I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you just tabulate your daily interactions in the world, the people are pretty great. But I do think if you ask people about people, you know, like as an abstraction, that's when you start Mm -hmm. getting the cynicism. But, you know, that really speaks, I think, a lot to human psychology, that we don't, um, you can't empathize with an abstraction. You can empathize with an individual. And I think it is one of the, you know, coming back to the individualist, collectivist, sort of cultural views, um, I think this is one of the advantages of individualism, is when you think about individuals as individuals, you can Mm. You can represent their individual mind and their individual emotions, and you can empathize with them. We know this from the individual identifiable victims effect, right? If you think of a person as a single human being with a name and a face and feelings, that's what brings out the emotion. That's what brings out the empathy. When you think of collectives, when you think of groups of people, even two, right? You can't represent the mind of two people. You can't, Mm. right? We can't Mm. do it. It It immediately becomes an abstraction once you start thinking about groups. And that's, I think, what brings out the worst in us, frankly. Wow, yeah. And, and, and the sad thing is for abstract beliefs, even if we don't act on it, still impacts us and makes us feel anxious and, and, and sad. Yeah. And, you know, cynical people yeah. die earlier of heart attacks. And, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's because it's so self-confirming and everyone you meet might be an exception, but, yeah. you know, it's very easy to just typecast them and say, they're just the exception, but still it holds true. And so it's, it's yeah. really important to be sensitive to data and maybe be open to changing your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important, especially to consider, you know, at this moment in time, there's a real tendency, I think, in the, in the world today to think of people as avatars of groups. Mm. Um, and I don't think that brings out people's psychology at its best. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, uh, I totally agree with you that the data suggests that we should, that the, you know, that, that thinking about individuals as individuals is, is, is more likely to bring about all our most pro-social qualities, which as somebody whose own life was saved by a stranger, I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for a stranger who valued me as an individual and was willing to risk his life to save me. Um, and as somebody who, my graduate advisor, Melanie Abadi, of course, was at Stanford until she died. Um, why? Because um, she lost her life because she couldn't find an altruistic bone marrow donor. Mm. Uh, you know, there were a bunch of people on the registry who were potential matches for her who said they didn't want to donate after all when they were contacted mm. by the by the registries. And mm. so these topics matter to me a lot. Mm. <laughs> like I really care about understanding the, the answers to how we can bring out the best in people, how we can bring out the, the empathic pro-social qualities that I think most people possess. Um, how can we bring them out at their most? And so that's why I think it's important to think about cultural um uh, variables because those are things that we can change um and we want to we want to push the levers that brings out the best of people not the worst <laughs>